Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Rick Anthony from 4C Health Solutions. Rick, welcome to the show. Michael, thanks for having me. Great. So, uh, Rick, here's the game plan. What we seek to do here on the show is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Absolutely. So to get us started, going to read a brief bio about you and 4C Health Solutions so the audience has some context about who they're listening to, and then we'll jump into the interview. Rick is an Executive Vice President for 4C Health Solutions. He brings over 35 years of experience to 4C, primarily as a benefit consultant to business organizations who are seeking innovative ways to reduce waste in their healthcare spend. He has designed effective compensation and benefit plans for companies to create value for their employees and investors. Rich received his degree in industrial relations and management marketing from St. Joseph's University, and he resides in Chester Springs, Pennsylvania, with his wife and four children, and has been known to sing from time to time. We have to get into singing uh, after this, Rick. Oh, well, you may son. regret it, but okay. <laughs> I got a son and daughter who are into that as well. So, All right. So, Rick, you've had a, a long career on the consulting side of the business and, and most recently transitioned to 4C Health Solutions. So why did you decide to leave the advisory side of the business and go work for 4C? Well, again, in, in that long career you mentioned, I appreciate that. We constantly worked with employers on how to lower their costs associated with health plans. You, you know the drill. You get yep. the call from the CFO or the head of HR with a mandate to cut 20%, even though healthcare costs on trend alone are going up 12%. Right. And so I had these guilt pangs over and over again that networks weren't the solution. Utilization wasn't the solution. Cost shift couldn't continue to be the solution, that the real problem was in the actual cost of healthcare. And the shell game that was being played between providers and networks. I'll say non-capitated networks because they're not all guilty. Plans like Kaiser are set up to basically protect on a capitated basis their own assets and interests. In a self-insured health plan, the fiduciary is the employer and the employer is relying on their ASO carrier or TPA to provide some semblance of fiduciary protection, even though that fiduciary responsibility lies with the employer. It became a frustration over and over again when a random claim audit would pick up things that should never have been paid in an ASO or TPA contract, yet somehow slipped through the cracks. And then you analyze the actual network discounts. And while the discounts are legitimate, that doesn't stop the provider from just increasing their costs and having a discount off a higher number. So other than direct contracting and metric-based pricing, which are very good beginnings, where does an employer really look to find money? And that is in the fraud, waste, and abuse area. It's their own money, their employees' money, that is being squandered, not because the ASO carriers or TPAs are hopeless or helpless to fix it, but because there are some very sophisticated fraud schemes that are being perpetrated on us as a nation and our healthcare system, some pirated overseas, others within our own borders where 
we're being defrauded of of uh, significant health care claims. The government thinks about a trillion dollars, a little bit less than a third of our total spend, is attributed to fraud, waste, and abuse. That's a scary wow. number. Very scary. Very scary. So you were motivated to move over and do something to try and have a little bit more impact. Yes. Excellent. So 4C, look, there are plenty of audit firms out there that will effectively go and chase money after it's paid. Mm-hmm. The claim is paid, audit firm comes in, confirms it should have been paid, and they will do everything they can to recover that money and get a piece of it in return. So you're double paying for it. And the best recovery companies are probably going to set the best are going to settle for about a 20% recovery rate. That's still a lot of money that leaves the coffers that is not able to be uh, brought back into the fold. So what 4C was bringing to the table, is bringing to the table, is the ability to stop that payment from ever happening. No need to pay and chase. It's a stop right away. 4C is not an audit firm. It is an adjudication system that attaches to a claim payer's adjudication system, again, to stop appearances before they're paid. So I want to get into the 4C product and service, but I think this is a problem that probably our audience and most employers just aren't that educated on. And so I I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this notion that, you know, I think in talking with some of your team members, the the number that's been thrown out there is there's about $300 billion of waste and fraud in healthcare every year. And that, you know, most employers, you know, I can guarantee you are unaware of it. And so that's a huge number, which raises, you know, a ton of different questions, right? So let's start with how do we define this waste and fraud that accumulates into $300 billion? You know, can you give us some examples of, of both? I can give you some definitions around fraud, waste, and abuse. They're all different. The numbers are actually close to a trillion dollars when you sum them all up. But fraud is generally defined as knowingly and willfully executing a scheme to defraud any health care plan of any money using nefarious purposes. This is most generally understood by the FBI as happening by pirates. Stolen patient records, as you know, major problem. Mm-hmm. Most Americans thought that those patient records would be used to commit credit card fraud. But some very smart people in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and other places devised schemes to use that patient information that also had provider information in it to create phony MPI numbers, put up a, a P.O. box, and submit claims for a legitimate patient through a legitimate doctor that never happened and have those dollars sent electronically to a phony physician that looks legitimate to the claim payer. Wow. And it's a very, very sophisticated scheme. The FBI says $350 billion alone leaves our borders every year through that type of fraud. When people read about Medicare fraud, and there's a lot of that, and Medicaid fraud, there's a lot of, a lot of that. But this pirating scheme is significant. We talk directly to the FBI. They catch, they hope, about 10% of it. But those pirates, once they realize something is amiss, they just disappear. You can't recover those dollars. Once those dollars are spent, they're gone. And they move on to their next scheme, the next creation of a phony doctor invoice, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Waste in the fraud, waste, and abuse continuum is, is really an overutilization of services directly or indirectly result in unnecessary cost to the healthcare system. An example of that would be an anesthesiology group run by a, a head anesthetist basically is billing out for 120 procedures a week when you know that's impossible. Well, he's got junior anesthetists or residents 
that are actually performing those duties and billing out at his higher Higher rate. Yep. There are circumstances we find, again, this is not intentional. A bundled approach will be unbundled by a provider, and certain pieces will be billed separately from the unbundled piece. Now, unfortunately, that is a situation that is typically allowed by a claim payer, both TPAs and ASO carriers, because there's no real parameters around yet around the bundled, unbundled approach. So we catch those types of things as well. Abuse in the fraud, waste, abuse spectrum is, is payment for services that are not legally entitled to be paid to any individual or entity, but is not no, they've not knowingly or intentionally misrepresented facts to obtain the payment. The government, through actually the Encyclopedia of Healthcare Management, says there's about between 80 and 272 billion dollars in, in 2014 that have been paid out on claims like that, unintentional actions that occur that result in payments that shouldn't happen. Waste, I go back to waste, I apologize. Yep. The Institute of Medicine says that waste contributes about $750 billion in uh, healthcare costs every single year. So we're over a trillion dollars when you add up fraud, waste, and abuse, and what can be done about that? What, what are the real things that can happen? What rules-based and, and behaviors can we used to stop those types of payments. And that's why 4C became an attractive proposition for me. That makes sense. And, you know, we've had so many security breaches. It seems like there's a new one, you know, every single month. And, you know, specifically, since we talk about healthcare on this podcast, I mean, I believe Anthem has had two major breaches, you know, over the last two years. And so, you know, most people, you know, I remember, um, you know, our company uses uh, Anthem. I remember getting a notice in the mail of the security breach. So for most people who, you know, may be getting notices about, you know, their information being shared, I mean, what are the risks? You probably got two years of free life lock from Anthem as well, correct? Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's yeah. fine. Again, that, that was protecting you from the credit card risk. Somebody using your name and your social security number and address, et cetera, to create a phony version of you to go rack up bills. And LifeLock is, I don't want to do a commercial for them, but they do a good job in stopping that type of thing. What we'll see, an employee will go to their employer and say, I just got an EOB for something I never had done to me or my child or my spouse. Right. That EOB will be sent back to the claim payer, and the claim payer will audit that specific claim and say, no, we have a legitimate NPI code for Dr. Smith. And this procedure occurred in February, and we paid it accordingly. Once the employee alerts the uh, employer and the employer alerts the SIU unit, the fraud unit of every claim payer, and it's investigated, that's pretty much where it stops. Nope, we had a legitimate claim. We paid it like we were supposed to. Here's all the documentation. HR benefits doesn't follow up. And it just sits there as another problem. So oh, it never so, goes anywhere because the employee. I mean, most employees they're busy with their lives, right? And and chasing down right. something like this probably just gets forgotten. I would assume. And ASO carriers, quite frankly, and I'm not here to malign anybody, but their business is in paying claims. They get paid to pay claims. If they're paying less claims, they don't make as much money. Even if they're charging a PEPM charge to adjudicate claims per month, they use a number, an algorithm, to create how many claims they think they will pay based on the rate that they're charging. So the more claims they pay, the more they can charge in subsequent years because there's been an increase in activity. So these are sophisticated issues that 
I would say this. Large employers understand because they've got a large group of people that are specifically looking at these things. But the fraud piece, I know myself, when I first heard about the fraud that was being committed and dollars leaving the country, I said, you got to show me that. And they showed me several examples. Here's a, here's a good one. There was um, a large airline through a rack audit done by their consultant that a physician had billed for three hysterectomies for the same woman. Oh, and by the way, she delivered a baby three months later. Those three <laughs> charges were paid three times $34,000. Because yep. again, physician was correct, patient was correct. There was no information that toggled back and forth between how many times the person had a hysterectomy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that sounded the alarm, quite frankly, for the airline to do a deeper dive and found close to $300 million of aberrancies that had been allowed to be paid by their claim payer. Gosh, and that's resulted that's, in some unhappy, unhappy conversations, as you might add. You mentioned a second ago that you know most large employers are aware of this stuff. I would contend that they don't. They, they don't know about this and that they aren't aware of it. You know, I think this is probably happening under most people's noses and that they're completely ignorant about it. I would have to disagree. <laughs> I probably would have agreed with you a year ago, but now it's impossible to find a large employer that's not aware of their fiduciary liability, and, and maybe we should talk about that. Most employers, large and small, who have 401K plans, recognize that they are the fiduciary on that 401k plan. And because of the activity that the Department of Labor and the Internal Revenue Service has done in auditing many of those plans for compliance, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times routinely has a front-page story on an employer that has been fined an enormous amount of money for irregularities in their 401k plan mm -hmm. uh, and the mismanagement of it, the selection of port funds. And what happens is, typically when somebody goes to retire, they'll finally look at their statement and say, geez, this fund that they forced me into 11 years ago didn't perform. If they had simply used this fund, I would have an additional $300 a month. Next thing you know, there's a class action suit. Literally, the fines are atomic, and restitution of the plans are atomic. What people have recently come to realize is those same fiduciary rules apply to health care plans because employee contributions are being commingled with employer money to pay for claims. Sure. So those exact same rules apply. We're finding audit firms, the big uh, accounting firms, who are going to their CFOs and risk manager clients and saying, we're not going to sign the audit statement unless and until you audit your fiduciary liability associated with your health plan. Now all of a sudden the alarm bell is ringing. You've got board members who are personally liable, specifically the chairman of the comp committee, who usually has benefits reporting to her or him, that are personally liable, their homes can be taken, in the event that uh, a fiduciary breach has occurred in a health plan. Furthermore, every employer that submits a 5500 form, there's a Schedule H on that 5500 form that specifically asks whether or not the, the plan has been subject to any waste, fraud, or abuse and you check yes or no. The vast majority of employers check no because they hide behind plausible well, deniability. Most of them aren't aware. I'm not aware of any, so I'm just going to check no here. Well, the Department right. of Labor, the gentleman in charge of health plan enforcement, has said to my face, as, as, I, do, as I was doing due diligence on 4C, anyone who checks that box off, who has a hint, some hint 
that there may be some fiduciary breach somewhere is subject to criminal penalties. And furthermore, no insurance company, ASO carrier or TPA, can inhibit the employer from abiding by their fiduciary liability. So carriers must help them cooperate in, in recouping these dollars or stopping these dollars from leaving the health plan system, et cetera, et cetera. Being that today, I believe you'd be hard-pressed to find a Fortune 1,000 firm more than well aware of their fiduciary liability, and the Department of Labor is saying they're going to be ramping up, specifically auditing the question, Schedule H, on the 5500 form, Show us, prove to us that you have had no waste, fraud, and abuse in your plan. That's going to be uh, earth-shattering uh, when the DOL comes out. Now, they already have started doing that quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, we are aware of uh, several large manufacturing firms that are complying with the audit request from the DOL and have come to us and said, can you help us? Again, what's different about 4C from other firms in this space is we're not an audit firm. We adjudicate every single self-insured claim, medical, dental, vision, or pharmacy, looking for 170 and growing areas of rules-based aberrancies and then applying, I hope this is your next question, a behavioral approach uh, to that same, those same rules-based uh, issues to determine real fraud versus conjecture versus waste versus abuse. I want to differentiate you guys, though, between, you know, what, because you mentioned Fortune 1000, you know, companies, right, who are aware of this problem and doing something about it. Okay. Well, but the majority of the employers, you know, in the United States are, are well below, you know, the Fortune 1000, right? And there's plenty that are self-insured, you know, in that middle market space. And so it's that portion, that segment of the market where there probably still is a lot of ignorance about this. While they may be hiring, a third party to come in and audit the TPA, generally that audit is going to be if claims have been, you know, claims audit is just going to cover if have claims been paid according to the plan document. I don't think right. that that most third parties that are doing claim audits are actually doing that good of a job, you know, looking for waste, fraud, and abuse. And so you guys, if I've kind of understood correctly so far, are trying to fill a need in the marketplace for just that. I completely agree, and let's talk about that a little bit. When an employer uses an audit firm to audit their ASR TPA carrier, they're really looking to recoup guarantees that have been made by that company on accuracy, payment, uh, timeliness, et cetera. What could they recoup a portion of the fees paid to them? In the meantime, claims that were paid improperly dwarf the amount of money that would be recouped from a, a fee guarantee. So the, the conversation has changed from put a percentage of your fees at risk for payment accuracy, timeliness, et cetera, et cetera, to you need to prove to us that every claim that you pay is legitimate, every single one, in every way, shape, or form, that that an anesthesiologist actually did perform that service on that date, at that time, at that facility, that that MPI code for Dr. Smith in, in Kansas City was a legit claim proffered by his office for a patient of his. What are the rules associated with proving that? More importantly, what are the behaviors that suggest that that claim was aberrant? So it's getting more sophisticated. And, you're, and I did say the Fortune 1000, but as you know, when, when large employers lead, others follow. I met with a 750 Life group yesterday who recognized they had a fiduciary liability. They happened to be owned 
by an attorney, a, f- a former ERISA attorney. Mm-hmm. Very educated group, as you might imagine, as a result of that. They retained us to do a complete re-adjudication, five years' worth of claims, to see if there's any waste, fraud, abuse in those plans. And, and it, so it is coming down market, but it's being led by, uh, again, the larger firms that have in-house risk attorneys, that have in-house actuaries, that understand the vagaries of fiduciary liability. It's, sure. it's happening now. The results are pretty astounding. Every group that we've reviewed, and, and how we start our process, by the way, is we do a look back as far back as we can to determine what types of apparencies have occurred in, this, in, the, in that plan over time. And the numbers routinely are between 7 and 20% of claims paid are aberrant. And the lowest number we ever came up with was 6.5%. That's establishing kind of the, the business case. So you'll take a couple years of historical data and you'll you'll go sort of mine for the opportunities or instances of, of fraud, waste, and abuse and what's been paid improperly. Correct. And that's a level set. We don't charge for that, by the way, because that's really what helps us build the case to provide what we call our defender series, which is really what stops those payments before they're ever paid. Tell us about that. So this is the actual product that an employer would, would purchase. And so essentially you become an in-between between the um, the time when the claim is submitted and it's paid. And you guys are providing a service to ensure that that claim is legit. Yes. And again, with sanitizing some of the words, many of these, the Buka contracts, Blues, United, Cigna, and Aetna, mm-hmm. uh, do not allow for any audit function between adjudication and payment because their provider contracts don't want their DRGs disturbed. That's a a very legitimate issue. But because we're not an audit firm, we're not doing recoveries, although we can help an employer try to recover, we will work with any recovery company providing them the data that we have. We are truly an adjudication engine. So we're part of the adjudication process. So what happens is Abuco will adjudicate a claim. It will run through our pipe in real time. Mm-hmm. Typically, we will approve roughly 80% of claims. We will mm-hmm. throw back some as blatantly fraud, waste, or abuse, which is about 10% of the claims. And the other 10, we will uh, seek additional data. Now, this takes literally minutes. It doesn't really stop payments from happening for claims that are legitimate, and it delays the payment of other claims for further information. Those claims are advised to go back to the claim payer for additional information, mm-hmm. for vouching for certain information that was provided in the claim, and then once they have additional information or if that claim doesn't go away, it gets sent through our pipe again. We will approve it and or throw it out. Then it's between the claim payer and the provider to figure out what happened here. So in those instances, again, success rate is roughly success. I hate to say it's success, but it is. Yeah. We're, we're saving employers an ROI of about 20 to 1, our fee versus what they're saving and not paying those claims. It's pretty frightening. We do believe that as, as claim payers get more intelligent around this area, they will do a better job, but unfortunately, as we said, they get paid to pay claims. This is digging into their uh, claim payment revenue model, uh, so they have to come to grips with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked to you on this podcast many times about you know misaligned incentives 
And, you know, those <laughs> without a doubt exist. But just so, you know, our audience understands the, the process, you know, you find these 10% of claims that need more information or outright reject it. And so basically you're sending a message back to the TPA saying, do not pay this claim. And they're taking the advice and, and denying the claim. Or they're going back to the provider to say, we need additional information on this claim. Mm -hmm. If the provider does not get back to them, you know that an attempt of fraud has been made against your plan. And our system learns that, by the way. We flag certain providers in our system through our entire client database, mm -hmm. which where we know there have been problems in the past, a provider that consistently unbundles when they shouldn't be. We know there are going to be problems there, so our system is always learning. The more claims that we see, the better, the more intelligent it becomes. Uh, and by the way, there are claims that we spit out that we say don't pay, that sometimes there are legitimate reasons that come back to us and say, no, we have the better information. This claim should be paid. Mm -hmm. As you might imagine, a significant amount of aberrancies occur in pharmacy plans because of uh, the rules that <laughs> apply or don't apply depending on who the carrier is. We're very successful in challenging those claims, especially drugs, Michael, as you can imagine, driving our costs through the roof. Many of those claims have never passed a formulary test. Why are we using especially drug when we haven't tried drugs one, two, and three? And we catch those issues, those instances. Sometimes it's an acute case where the specialty drug is called for, and at that point the, the drug is approved uh, for payment. Yeah. Those are few and far between. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So in, in your experience, just to you know, add some color to this for our audience, I mean, where are you finding most of the, the waste and the fraud? Any, any specific categories? Is it inpatient, outpatient, professional services? Well, there are, there are fewer claims associated with facility that are FWA, only because, again, most of them are, are being, being built out as bundled. Mm -hmm. which we view as almost like a capitation. So we look for specific things in those facility claims that would articulate that something missed the bundle, uh, and we deny that claim. There is a significant amount of fraud, waste, and abuse in, in what we call the professional claims, physician, uh, specialist, et cetera, where we deny claims more often that way. Now, there are more claims in that, in that spectrum than there are in facility sure. claims as well. But it's amazing some of the tricks that are used to game the system to, to get payments uh, through. Uh, you read a lot about this in Medicare fraud and Medicaid fraud, not so much in employer direct payer stories. But I would say the bulk of our action is with the professional claims rather than facilities. It's interesting. We're doing a, a TPA marketing for you know one of our self-insured clients right now. You know, as we're preparing to present this to our, the results to our client, and we're you know reviewing the proposals and doing our due diligence. It's interesting. All of the TPAs already say that they have their own process, you know, to review for claims and fraud. They say that they're essentially doing this. So, what would your response be to this notion that the carriers are already purporting to be to be doing the service that that you're talking about? Uh, again, I don't want to. Uh, malign anybody on this podcast, but I would tell you it's the fox watching the hen house. Mm -hmm. So who is really looking out for the employer? And by the way, that test where a TPA is saying we're already taking care of claim integrity, that's not going to work with the Department of Labor who does an audit and says you had this, this many apparencies. I don't care that your TPA told you that they were taking care of that. It's fox watching the hen house. You have to have your own policeman 
watching your own claims. That is, the, the, you have to take the utmost care. So you have to go through a process to select the best firm to watch over your claim payer to make sure there are no emergencies being paid. That's how I would basically go attack the, the TPA market and the carrier market. Atnet, for instance, has just entered into a contract with a, with a well-known audit firm. They basically advertise that they have the highest claim integrity of any of their competition. Well, I would argue that that's nice that, that Atnet's saying that, and they did use a good firm, but they manage the relationship. They don't want to upset anybody, especially who their, their uh, claim partners are, and so they may, may set their governor at a lower level. Well, only look for 3% of appearances. Don't set it any higher than that. We know that happens. We like the fact that we are employer-friendly. We're working for the employer in consort with the claim payer because, quite frankly, if we're not working with a claim payer, we can't do our jobs. And we don't want to be rammed down the throat of a claim payer. We want to be a partner with them, reporting directly to the employer. That's who pays our bills. That's who we're responsible to. And they're the ones that have the fiduciary liability. So we're watching out for them. So in concert with that, that you know, you don't want to be adversarial with the TPA. I mean, can you work with any TPA? And conversely, are all TPAs open, TPAs and ASO carriers, are they open to sharing data with you and working with you? TPAs, yes. TPAs generally get what we're, we're doing and they recognize that if they that they have that type of claim integrity going forward with us reporting to the employer they're going to get a larger share of the market the bukas are resisting for a number of different reasons i will tell you that it was a year ago when i had one of the bukas look me in the eye and say we will never work with you and we're onboarding two of their clients this month so we've softened them up a bit. Again, we don't want to be adversarial. We can't do our job unless we work with them, and they can't really protect their clients if they're not working with us. So we're trying to make that case over and over again. We're having some success. It's taken a year or so to loosen up the bukas, but in the end, when our message is delivered clearly and they understand we're not fighting them, we're working with them, We'll have better success with them. Ultimately, doesn't the you know a self-insured employer should have access to their data, no matter who the the, the the TPA is? Do you see in the marketplace that though there are there are roadblocks potentially from from an employer getting access to all their data from maybe a TPA or a Buka carrier who who is not uh, inclined to play? We include in our package language written for us by the largest ERISA attorney uh, law firm in the country that goes into every CSA customer service agreement for TPAs. We have provided that language to every BUCA who rejects it every time it comes into their plans. And that language specifically states what we all know. The employer owns that data. The insurance company, ASO carrier, cannot refuse to provide that data. And again, you go back to what the DOL told us, insurance carrier can inhibit in any way the fiduciary obligations of the employer. You build a case that says if a book is not going to provide that data, they're violating the Department of Labor uh, regs. Now, again, nobody likes to be threatened by the Department of Labor, but those are facts, and a, mm -hmm. good, a good law firm will go after that claim payer. Now, we have seen claim payers walk away from business as a result of that language being required in the CSA agreement. I think that's very telling. 
I was about to say that that uh, if they're walking away because of that language, I mean, it would lead me to believe there's there's something that they don't want exposed. Right, and 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 you know what's going on with the carriers? They're they're either buying a pharmacy company or or a pharmacy company's buying them. The uh, compact between ASO carriers and employers is changing. There's a lot more focus on Medicare and Medicaid now for the carriers. Employer market is becoming more and more complicated. This isn't helping the situation. Um, and the advent, especially uh, east of the Mississippi, of direct contracting with uh, healthcare providers is real now. They're going to be losing market share that way. So as an example, in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia market, a very large health system, is now opened up on a direct contract basis with a few thousand employees uh, mm-hmm. flying in the face of their provider agreement with uh, the local Blue Cross entity who pays them $3.4 billion a year in reimbursements. That's a gutsy move, but it's coming. Direct contracting is coming. Uh, and TPAs are going to have more of a market share today than the BUCAs do because they're going to be more flexible unless the BUCAs make a change fundamentally in how they do business. I think they will. I have faith in them. They're pretty smart people. We'll see. Time will tell. The primary service that you guys provide is the is the 4C Defender that we've we've talked about. Are there any other services that you're you're providing to your clients that uh, you'd like to to mention on the show? We believe we're creating a utility, all right, like an electric company or cable company, et cetera. Where we're we're just going to be a data pipeline of continuous information that gets updated in real time, mm-hmm. and there are going to be other entities that are going to want to tap into that data legally tap into that data, HIPAA compliantly tap sure, into that, sure. to do things like direct contract in the geography, to do things like better wellness, better disease management, being able to target those target those specific instances where we're able to direct contract on a brittle hemophiliac uh, who's generally uh, one hospitalization is a million dollars. If we're able to direct contract with a bundled approach, uh, with a provider that has a proven track record for $500,000, we're going to do that. We're going to help people do that. Mm-hmm. So, look, our fundamental business is to cut the cost out of healthcare and help fix healthcare in this country by getting rid of fraud, waste, and abuse. But we also have a, uh, a social obligation to provide the best type of healthcare when we're able to do that. And we believe our pipe, that utility, is going to have the best data in it to be able to define real opportunities to provide acute care with the best quality at the best price, totally transparent, which is really what what the promise of direct contracting is as well. Well, we've talked a lot on our podcast about direct contracting and bundled pricing and and, uh, the types of savings that can be achieved relative to a network discount. There's real value there. Rick, let's talk about uh, fees. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier that most of your clients are seeing a you know a twenty to one return on investment, or at least you know one of your clients did relative to fees. So, what is the fee structure? Is it is it a, a per employee per month? Is it a you know percentage of savings? You know, how does it work? We prefer uh, what we call PMPM per member per month. That includes mm-hmm. employees and dependents, and those fees range uh, depending on the how clean the data is from a dollar and a quarter on up to $3 per member per month, and that ROI stands up very well against those those metrics. We can take a percentage of savings, but we will tell you, and I have a personal problem with percentage of savings. I don't find it to be very professional because it, tend, it, it overpays. Chapter and verse stories about people that get paid a percentage of the savings, 
and they're overpaid for the services they provide. So if, if, a, if an employer says, well, we want you to prove yourself to us, we will agree to do a percentage of savings as long as the employer is ready to convert after one year to a PMPM, because then they will be paying us appropriately, if that makes sense. I, I think that makes sense. I can think of other examples of uh, percentage of savings uh, structures that are completely inappropriate, specifically, you know, some of the RBT vendors who, who charge a percentage of savings relative to build charges, which is a complete misaligned incentive. The, you have a competitor out there that is, is getting a lot of business because they're talking to an unsophisticated buyer that says, if you hire me as your broker or your advisor, uh, I will save you 20% and you will pay me a 10% of that 20%. Anybody who's been in the business more than a week as a broker advisor can save anybody 20%. Hell, I could save them 100%. <laughs> right. that, you know, cut the plan, you know, cost shift. It, and unfortunately, there are people that are falling prey to that type of approach. It really gives all of us in the industry a bad name. So that's, that's my angst about percentage of savings. Yeah, well, I, in the end, this is a reputation business. People who burn bridges probably, uh, you know, won't be uh, won't be long in the tooth, you know, in the industry. But uh, that's just my opinion. I agree. All right, you guys are a fairly new vendor in the marketplace. Been around for a couple of years now, correct? So, so how many clients and members are you currently working with? We've got 1.9 uh, live bodies on this system, with another three million in the pipe. That's when I say pipe, that means close to being sold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have another $17 million in proposals outstanding of various sizes. We've got blocks of business with uh, three TPAs right now that we're just getting attached to their pipe, their entire block. And these are well-known, uh, well-heeled, well-thought-of uh, third-party administrators, which gives us uh, a lot of confidence that our model is going to break through our specific model rather than just a rules-based model. Sure. Uh, sure. So business, you know, we're on the upswing. Um, we are reasonably confident that once the Department of Labor comes out with new rules governing health plan fiduciary, dam is going to burst. We're going to be ready to handle that business. Probably just going to take one example of one executive, you know, getting fined for violating their fiduciary, you know, responsibility with regard to the health plan for, for others to... Uh, you know, take note. Um, and I agree. If and when that happens, that'll probably open the floodgates. Are there any obstacles that you've encountered to an employer saying yes to implementing, you know, this service when you've presented it to them? The number one obstacle is the, the belief that there will be a delay in provider payments, which could potentially lead to balanced billing issues, something that people are used to now with the metric-based pricing that has happened. We have had no incidents of that happening as well because, again, we're part of the adjudication system. Any claim that is not paid is due to an aberrancy that's being checked out. It's part of a, a, a natural process. So there are no delayed payments for properly adjudicated claims. So we're able to overcome that. Nobody's going to be able to put us on a Yelp and say that we're slowing down claim payments. But that's the number one thing we have to get over. The second thing is can you really get the data from our carrier? That's where we rely on the broker advisor and the employer to to use their leverage. Uh, It would be a lie for me to tell you that's been an easy go. TPAs has been very easy. With the bookers, it's been, you know, hit or miss. But, again, we're going to get through that as well. This is new. They'll get used to it when they realize, again, that we're not 
trying to hurt them or trying to help them. Or they'll just do it when they realize they're going to lose business. Well, I have some anecdotes about that as well, but uh, you'd be surprised <laughs> at the carriers that have walked away uh, rather than give up uh, the data. I hope the DOL is going to be weighing in on this one soon. They're, they're aware of it. It's a very well-known manufacturer who, uh, after doing our look back, uh, we we determined there was a $500 million apparency issue. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, <laughs> The client went to their claim payer and said, you owe us $500 million. And the claim payer laughed at them (laughs) and said, uh, well, you could sue us, uh, but really all you're doing is creating a class action suit for yourself because once your employers figure this out, they're going to sue you. And you're the fiduciary. You're the one with the most to lose. So they they dug their heels in the sand. The employer wound up firing them, and they walked away. The carrier walked away happily. So those are the types of things that are happening right now. The real peril is with the employer, and the employer has to protect the assets of that plan at all costs, just like they do with their 401k plan. Now, today, you probably know, Michael, an employer with a 401k plan can do away with 99% of their fiduciary liability by using what's known as a 338 fiduciary. That remedy does not exist today for health plans. There's no one that's going to take on that full fiduciary liability. So we're filling that hole is what we like to tell people. Got it. Got it. And Rick, I think this has been a great conversation, and I think if there was one lesson for the audience that you know maybe they weren't aware about is the you know uh, ERISA fiduciary liability is a is a real thing out there, and a company like yours can can help to to make sure that an employer is actually fulfilling the responsibility that exists for them. If there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't in this interview. What would it be? Well, I'm glad you didn't ask me about singing. <laughs> I may I may ask you afterwards. <laughs> I've mentioned a couple of times a major differentiator for us is the fact that we just don't use rules. We use behavioral technology as well. And that means we're able over a period of time to recognize a pattern in a provider that is not the norm and therefore kick that claim out. It's analogous to uh, FICO with your credit card. Mr. Maneri, are you in Des Moines, Iowa today? No, I'm not. Well, somebody just tried to use your credit to buy a diamond ring. We didn't think that was anything that followed your pattern, so we're not going to pay it. Thank you. How many times has that happened? There's somebody running around in San Diego, running around every Walmart there is in San Diego, uh, trying to (laughs) charge things on my credit or my wife's credit card. But we get the call from FICO just to confirm that's not us. That's the type of technology that we're deploying with health plans. So we have no history, Michael, of you ever having an issue with uh, with kidney cancer because that's something that requires a diagnosis and a treatment pattern, et cetera, et cetera. Yet we note you had a kidney removed on Thursday. We need to check on that to see what led up to that kidney removal. That happens a lot now. Sometimes it's legitimate. Somebody has an X-ray. Oh my God, we're putting you we're putting you right into the surgery. That kidney is removed. Many times, that's a fraudulent claim. That's where we apply the behavioral rules as opposed to just the rules associated with 178 or 190 different types of rules mm-hmm. that an audit firm would use uh, to find a waste, fraud, and abuse claim. That makes sense. That makes sense. Rick, how can people interested in the 4C uh, Defender product uh, and service get in touch with you and learn more? Uh, best way is to go to our website, which is uh, being retooled as we speak, but it's 4chealthsolutions.com. Uh, hit contact, and I'll probably be the guy that calls you back. Very good. Well, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for 
taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. I think it's been a, a great discussion and, and certainly you know educational for me and hopefully for our, our listeners. Michael, thank you, and uh, my best to you and your success and the best health to your listeners. Thank you. All right, and to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we will sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to 4C Health Solutions website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content and interviews we're bringing to you on the show. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast.